Part four, First Thessalonians. We move into this part of our study that deals with practical instruction for new believers in Christ. The key word tonight is the word walk. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live. If you have the King James Version, it says how to walk in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Down to the 12th verse. We'll be focusing on the fourth chapter tonight, but in the 12th verse, so that your daily walk or life may win the respect of outsiders so that you would not be dependent on anybody. The believer's behavior is compared to a walk for many reasons. It demands life. Dead sinners can't walk. It requires growth. A little baby can't walk yet. It requires liberty. Someone bound can't walk. It demands light. No one wants to walk in the dark. It demands the fact to understand that life cannot be hidden. All can see someone who's walking. And it announces progress when we walk. Anyone can lay flat and say, I'm too tired, I'm too lazy. But Paul is talking tonight about the kind of walk the believer is to have. Have you ever wondered if you are walking in such a way that lines up with the principles of the Word of God? Tonight we'll see a primer on this topic from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Paul here announces several elements to our walk. First of all, he said, walk in holiness. Walk in holiness. I'll begin reading. I read verse 1. I'll, I'll go on. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Here in this particular passage, Paul, first of all, deals with marriage and human sexuality and even in the home. The heathen cities in those days had no standards regarding purity or moral uprightness, so there was great danger in that city for the lives of the new Christians because of the temptations, because of the attacks, because of the sexual predators and the opportunities that were there all around. You can kind of relate to what's going on in this context as well as what's going on even tonight around the world. You've seen even in uh, uh, Pakistan, in India, in China, in Japan, 
people are starting to rise up and say, you cannot just walk down the street and choose to rape somebody without there being consequence. Two guys were sentenced to death just yesterday by Pakistani court. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of corruption in the world today, even in our own culture here. And uh, <clears throat> the general atmosphere in these nations' homes, prior to the entrance of the gospel, was lust and selfishness. And so Paul is reminding everyone that the Christ follower's first responsibility is to build a Christ-centered atmosphere in their heart, in their home, so that will end up glorifying God. So Paul exhorts them to please God and not themselves or their own inclinations or their own lust and, and so forth. So I want to remind you tonight as we begin that God's will for their lives was that they would be sanctified. They, we, that they would be sanctified. <clears throat> I, I announced uh, several Sundays ago that big words, uh, you know, big words that we find in the, in the New Testament uh, can be daunting for people to understand. We want to define what that word sanctified really means. Hagiagmos is the Greek word, and it means to be set apart from one thing to another. One definition would be to be separated unto God. So he says God's will is that you in this church would be separated unto God and not your flesh. All right. So the believer has been set apart to live for God and to honor God and to please him. I hope that every teenager in our city, and especially these who are listening tonight in our midst, can understand the, the, the foundational aspects of what God is telling us tonight in his word. He or she has a responsibility to devote more and more of themselves to God. You cannot be transformed in yourself. You, cannot, you can't say, I'm just, I'm going to try and be a better person. No, your flesh will dominate your emotion every time. But notice, it's our responsibility to please the Lord, he said, and you ask, well, how can you do that in a world filled with images every day, all in front of a pornography at an all-time high? The average age now is something like eight or nine years old when the first shot, somebody just innocently looking at a little video thing, all of a sudden, somebody sees something they shouldn't see, and you go, what was that? And I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is the agent of sanctification. He is the one who causes our heart to say, yes, I want to please you. And then he gives us the strength to do what is right. Amen. Now, we know that nothing will defile the body and the spirit more than sexual sin. So Paul's exhortation is not just solely for the church at Thessalonica that we've been studying. He also gave the same admonition to the church at Corinth, which I will highlight briefly with you. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. You say, he's writing to believers now, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Now, I apologize for the frankness of Paul's letter, but we have to understand this. 
To desecrate what God has made holy is wrong living, and he reminds us of the cross of Christ. Otherwise, if we live in a carnal way and manner and just give in to every temptation and so forth and defile ourselves, we have negated the value and the power of the cross. Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? What is he talking about? Then he explains, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? He's using the, the, the concept of a prostitute as we understand what happens with that. But he's, he's informing us that when two people unmarried come together sexually in a manner that, like this, they become one with each other, God's telling us. It's not appropriate. He's denouncing it. He's declaring it right now. The two, he says, become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And we see the, we see the difference. God has called forth, it's his idea, sex is God's idea, and, and what, a, what a wonderful God we serve. And, and, but he tells us that it's proper in the context of, of marriage, one man, one woman, together. Praise God. Our culture's got a little twisted idea of what this means. But let's come back to the Word of God. He tells us in the 18th verse, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. If you examine what he's talking about here, it's very plain. The, the Greek language makes it clear that people that sin, that you lie to somebody, you steal from somebody, that's a sin in a different category. But if it's a sexual sin, it's of a different category. He announces it that it's, they've sinned against their own body. Sexual sin, then, is worse than other sins, according to this particular passage. Why is that? Scholars have studied this passage and have come to conclusion that the reason that it's that way is because the brain, like a computer, remembers what it sees. It remembers. And because those pictures in the mind, in the memory are designed to be enjoyed under the canopy of God's favor between a man and woman in holy marriage. If it's done in some other manner, you've sinned against your own body because you'll be hampered by the, by the pictures that you see in your mind of what you saw and what you experienced. Do you not know, then he says, he brings us back to the truth, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Then what, did he, what does he say? Therefore, in other words, and what is that therefore? He's giving us the explanation. Honor God with your bodies. So, in conclusion, when the Christian violates God's principles that are declared here in the Word, he sins against God himself and others. You go, man, that's pretty serious. Yes, but you know, God can forgive a person for making mistakes like this. God can adjust, he can heal us, he can redeem us, and no matter the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. First Thessalonians 4.4, 4, each of us should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Wow. God's word comes straight down, it's, there's, no, there's no smoke and say, well, I didn't know what he really meant. 
You, ha- you, you, you see what he says, and it's plain. So to ignore God's warning against sexual sin grieves the Holy Spirit. All right. So he's calling us to walk in holiness. The second thing he calls us to do is walk in love. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. Paul had taught them about love. You know, love is one of the birthmarks of the believer. You know, you see people, even in this context of our church family here, that walk up and just hug everybody, say, I love you, happy to see you. And it's unconditional, glorious love to be loved like that in a family like this. And it's a marvelous thing to know that people love you in this church. And we're demonstrating to one another that we believe what God said about this topic. In 1 John, let me illustrate 1 John 3, 14. Now we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Well, this guy stole my boyfriend. This, this one got the job and I didn't. Um, I hate her. I hate them, whatever. Well, we know that we've passed from death. That's the spirit of death when you hate somebody. We've passed from death to life. Why? Because we love each other. First Peter 1.22. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, since you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. First John chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. I'm just trying to explain, I'm trying to explain what, what real love looks like. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. My, my, praise God. It is not enough that we care enough about each other, but we're called to love each other. We must also love those who haven't received Christ yet. Love people. Now we note Paul's directives, back to the third chapter that we studied last Sunday night. May the Lord, verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as as our love does for you. We're called to walk in, in holiness. We're called to walk in love. And thirdly, Paul, it gives a commandment to the church to walk in honesty, to walk in honesty in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, that you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Think about that. Paul addresses the believers and his position towards them. Some had misunderstood the promise of Jesus' return, and so they quit their jobs. And they went to the highest place in the mountains and set up a little tent and said, we're watching for Jesus. He's coming back. And they quit their jobs. 
And so now they're beggars. Now they're people that wanting other people to sustain them. Paul is giving a, a directive to these people. And so in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, he said, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model to you who to imitate. For even when we were there with you, we gave you this rule. No one who is unwilling to work, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Wow. Well, we have to understand the context of that. If you tell that to your children, you know, it could be a little bit offensive to them. A three-year-old, you know, if you don't work, you're not going to eat. If you say it to a, to a retiree that is, that is worked and, and now is eligible for, you know, all of the benefits and so forth, it's a little difficult to do. So we have to be careful that we understand the context here. But he, uh, he gives us a, a continuing words there in verse 11. We hear that some among you are idle, and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. <laughs> Amen. And such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Paul was some kind of a man, wasn't he? He's like a sheriff in town. Go ahead and make my day. Well, anyway, <clears throat> do not associate them in order that they may feel ashamed, yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Notice he tells people to study to be quiet. Now, what does that mean? It means to be ambitious, to be quite free from worry and fretting. That's what, that, you know, quiet doesn't mean, honey, I'm, quiet, I'm, being with the, I'm doing with the word, don't bother me now. I'm not talking about that. It's terrible when Christians become busybodies and need to know everyone's business. Someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, said, uh, are you ill? I go, excuse me? You look sickly. I go, you say the kindest things. Why would you think I look sick? We had just done four services. You might feel a little sick after four services, you know? She, well, anyway, praise God. They want to know things and so forth. You give them a kind word. Praise God. God's Word says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Now, I believe carelessness in this area is a serious matter, don't you? He calls us to walk in holiness, to walk in love, to walk in honesty, and then he tells us to walk in hope, to walk in hope. We're back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I love this last exhortation, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a classic passage on the rapture of the church. You go, well, pastor, I, I don't see the word rapture in the New Testament, and you won't find it there. But you will find in several cases God's declaration that his followers will be caught up. And uh, so we'll, we'll dive into this for a moment. Many had become filled with sorrow because they were wondering if their departed loved ones who had now been buried would be left behind at the return of Christ. They were uninformed. They had gone to their own conclusions on this matter. So Paul informs them this glorious truth that the dead in Christ, those who have accepted Christ as their sole reason for being accepted into heaven, will be raised first. Then all the blood-washed saints will be gathered to meet Christ in the air. Can you imagine how this is going to be? Dead bodies popping out of graves all over the world. Dead bodies coming out of the sea. Dead bodies whose ashes were sprinkled in, in, over mountains and so forth. My Lord, they're going to fly out of those places first after the trumpet sounds. And then we who are still alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Praise God. Now notice, this event will take place at any moment. I hope you're living in anticipation of the Lord's return. He could come before the evening service has ended. When our loved ones pass away, the Bible says, as believers, we are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for the honor to know Christ and to be able to, when it's moments where you say, I'll see you later to a loved one who you entrust to the hands of God at a grave service and so forth, and you know that you're going to see them again because of what God's word says. It's, it offers us great hope and assurance. <clears throat> Some years ago, it was uh, in the mid-1980s, um, our church in Virginia was was the uh, largest church in, in a five-county region. And uh, so I got called quite often to do funerals where there was no, f no relationship with a church. And um, I'll never forget, it was a Sunday afternoon, and uh, I was called by a funeral director uh, in town um, who, I, who I knew very well. He called and said, would you, would you come and help this family? There's been a terrible accident, and they don't have anybody to... And so... He, the funeral director told me the story, two 14-year-old boys, that the one boy was the son of a, 
of a truck driving guy who was over the road truck driver. And he had taught his son how to drive the cab as a 14 year old. And so he and his brother, he and his friend stole two of those cabs, those truck cabs. I don't know what the right, uh, tractor, I guess. Jeff, is that the right name, tractor? All right, so they were going from Virginia up to Delaware and they were playing leapfrog along the highway. One would go faster than the other and cut him off and then the next one would come and leapfrog him and that's how it went. Until one of them cut the other one off too short and the, the tractor tumbled and tumbled and so forth and the kid was killed instantly. So um, I, I got there just uh, maybe 15 minutes before the service in the funeral home and the funeral director rushed to the car and said, please come in quickly. And I came into the funeral home and there was this mother. The casket of this 14-year-old boy was laid out in the center of the, of the room. And this mother was on top of the casket, cross-legged, uh, laying on top of the, her 14-year-old son. And she had him around the neck and was calling him, come back, come back, come back. And the kid had long, really beautiful blonde hair and long hair. It was, it was shaking like the hair. I'll never forget the picture of that. Come back, come back. And it was the most hopeless, the most hopeless moment I can remember in my pastoral journey. Going then to the cemetery and I think it was six or eight inches of snow and it was cold and nasty and and the family was trying to keep from jumping into the, into, the, into the hole in the ground and so forth. No hope. No assurance. He said, don't grieve like those who have no hope. There was no hope for them. We who follow Jesus, who've received Christ as our Savior, have a living hope in Jesus. Are you thankful for that tonight? 1 Peter 1.3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us, past tense, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So in times of sorrow, the comfort the believer knows is widespread. Let me highlight several of them. First of all, the comfort that death for the believer is sleep. Sometimes after the first service, I look around and, uh, in our morning service, and some are, I wonder if they've, if they've gone to be with the Lord or if they're just resting and <laughs> gently say, hello, it's time to go. And I'm always happy when they wake up, praise God. <laughs> Sometimes the services we conduct have a positive effect on people. They can rest for a little bit, amen. Now notice, he said, those that sleep in Jesus. In verse 13, he said, those that sleep in death or sleep in Jesus. You know what it literally means? If you examine the original language, it means to be put to sleep through Jesus. So at the person's death, the spirit of man goes immediately to be with the Lord. I'm so thankful for that. Are you? I, I, you don't have to wait around. When you love Jesus, you're gone. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so then he reminds us in Philippians chapter 1, Paul said a little more amplification on this topic. 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my death or by my life. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if I am to go on living in the, in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know, Paul said. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body, he said. It's better by far to be with Jesus. Just chew on that. Next time you wake up and you feel some new pain, or, you know, you get to that next click, that that next digit on your birthday, and you go... Ooh, I'm getting old now, really old. Anyway, praise God. Did you know what the word cemetery means? Why don't you define it sometime and Google it? It means a sleeping place. Now, it's a place where those that have passed, their remains are placed in the ground. But can you imagine those who have rejected Christ or never heard about him There's no hope for them because they've already faced judgment that fast. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. At times of human loss, in addition, the comfort we have is of heavenly reunion. Heavenly reunion. Now, the hardest thing that we will experience in life is separation from our loved ones when they go to be with the Lord. But when Christ comes back, we will be together with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. The living saint will not precede those who have died. It's like, you know, if you go to a senior rest home, and watch the seniors, they, they get to the, they, you know, when it's food, breakfast time, Bonnie and I had had some personal experience in this, not, not because we are in a senior home, you understand. <laughs> some of you have wondered. But I, we used to go visit my mother in a, in a fabulous place that she lived in in Chicago, and she would plead with us to spend the night with her in, the, in that place, and uh, we reluctantly did. And um, anyway, Happy to be with mom, but in a one-bedroom apartment. Anyway, you understand how it can be with your mother and so forth. Anyway, breakfast time comes, and everyone's standing there with a walker and, and, and a tray on top. And where do they go first when they open the doors for the breakfast? Where? To the prunes. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> everyone fights for the prunes first. Praise God. So when you get to, don't you have a lot to look forward to? Praise God. (laughs) Prunes. And they will run you down, those people. They are really serious about getting there to the prunes. 
How did we get into this? Would you please help me? Oh, I know. The living saints will not precede those who have died. The honor of those who've gone before us, that God will afford them, they're not going to be last in line, they're going to be first in line. That's my point. <laughs> Sorry about the rabbit trail. Anyway. <laughs> and then we understand, finally, the comfort of eternal blessing. The comfort of eternal blessing. Paul concludes, he says, we will be forever with the Lord. Forever with the Lord. He tells us we will have a new body. Now think about that. You're going to be known up there like you were known here, but you'll have a new body. That's, that's quite a mystery, isn't it? Let's see if we can explain a little bit. 1 John 3, what great love the Father has lavished on us, verse 1 tells us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now are we the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. You're going to have a resurrection body that will know, not know tiredness, fatigue, emotional blahs, physical pain and struggles. Arthur's not welcome in heaven. You understand that? And the other itises, they can't come either. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul says that the body we place in the cemetery, in the ground, is like a seed awaiting harvest. Well, the body will turn to dust eventually. God said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. However, however, the resurrection body has identity with the body that was buried. Seeds planted in the ground, an apple seed was going to bring forth apples, an apple tree in time, peach accordingly. And um, they will reflect the specific qualities of that plant. So please note Paul's words here. In the 17th verse, after that, we who are still alive and will be left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That phrase, caught up, is a, is a, a statement full of meaning. To be caught up, here's five definitions. To, be, to catch away speedily, there'll be no warning. I saw a fly. I gave him no warning that his death was coming. <laughs> I snuck on him unawares, and you know how to get a fly. You don't go the way he's headed. You go behind him because they take off in reverse. Just a little tidbit you can learn tonight. So I went a quarter of an inch behind him and bam, caught him away, and he didn't know. He, anyway, he's gone tonight, praise God. Another definition of caught up, to seize by force, to claim 
for oneself as the bridegroom claims the bride. Another definition is to move to a new place or to rescue from danger. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that the church is the restraining force on this world tonight. Second Thessalonians, I won't get into it tonight, but you could read it. It tells us that when, the, when that which restrains has been removed, the devil will know his time has come. You think it's bad tonight? Wait till that moment. We're not going to be here, thank God. But the devil's work will go into a whole nother level. But we understand that until then, the church of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is restraining the work of darkness. Now notice, sometimes people say, well, pastor, is there a verse that you could help us with? Are we going through the tribulation? I'm not going to go into a discussion about that, but let me just give you this verse from 1 Thessalonians 5. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus rescues me and you from the coming wrath. I'm not worried about tomorrow. I hope you're not. I just want to be ready to meet Jesus because he's coming. And when he comes, when he comes, I want to be able to say there's nothing between me and you. Everything is right. The robes are prepared. My heart is right. Everything's ready to meet you. Don't let anything, any expression, any temptation get in your way because Jesus, I believe, is coming soon. Let's stand together in the presence of the Lord tonight. Father, we want to thank you for your presence tonight in this place. Your word has been declared. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. We are reminded of the urgency of living holy lives tonight. I pray, Lord Jesus, for anyone in this audience who is battling the tempter's uh, plans and, and uh, and uh, sexual uh, temptation in the mighty name of Jesus. Send a barrier up in their heart, in their, in their mind, in their spirit against him. And Lord Jesus, help them to know that you are more than enough to help them through every temptation. And Lord, we want to, as a family, cheer our young people, our, our young adults onward, to exhort them to live holy and a prosperous life in you, to experience the best that you have for them. And it comes by living a life that honors you. I pray, God, a covering over all of our young people in this uh, wonderful church family tonight. I thank you, Lord, that we're going to walk in a way of wisdom. We're going to learn to walk carefully before you in a spirit of, of uh, great contrition. And Lord, in holy anticipation of the trumpet sound that you said the whole world, the whole world will hear. My goodness. I'm looking forward to seeing you, Jesus, and I thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for delivering us. Thank you, Lord, that we, are, we, we have heard your voice. You've called to us. Your spirit has invited us to come. We have not resisted. We have said yes to you. We say yes every day to you, and the result is we walk in fellowship and sweet communion with you. Thank you, Jesus. You are the one we're looking for. You are the one who delivers us daily, and we praise you and thank you for this great privilege. Thank you, Lord. Is there anyone here tonight? 
you're away from Christ. You're, if Jesus comes tonight, you're not ready to meet him. There's something between you and him. You want to just ask him to help you this evening. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you tonight. This is a place that we believe that Jesus is the only hope of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. One of our leaders, I'm going to invite you to go back here with this fellow, this gentleman right over here and lead that man to Jesus right now. Raise your hand again so that, thank you, Lord, that, that we'll have some, some workers come there and help you. Praise God. We want to thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Thank you, Lord. I believe that the living Jesus is here among us tonight. I believe his presence is bigger than whatever you're facing tonight. I saw several of you coming in in a, in a, in a manner that, that I could tell you needed the, the touch of God tonight. That God would need to, that you just needed, desired his touch tonight in your body. You just lift your hand and say, that's me. I need him to touch me tonight. I need him to touch. Anywhere in this place, you have a need physically of the Lord's touch. I'm going to invite you that the Bible said, these signs shall follow the believing ones. In my name, they shall lay their hands upon the sick, and the sick shall recover. If someone near you has their hand in the air, the Holy Spirit is going to flow through any one of us who's washed in the blood. He's going to move through any one of us tonight. If someone is near you with a, with a, with a hand lifted up, if there's a woman near you, I'm going to ask one of our ladies to go. If there's a man with his head raised, just go to him, and, and we're going to pray right now. We're going to believe God. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, you see everyone in need. You see everyone who's battling tonight. You see everyone who's got issues in their bodies. I want to thank you that you came to deliver us. You came to set the captive free. You came to heal the sick, to declare the, the day of the Lord. I thank you, Lord, you are here among us tonight. And by faith, we release our faith to you. For those that are watching online that have a, have a burden, a physical challenge in the name of Jesus, I ask you to touch them right now where they are. Release their faith to trust you, Lord Jesus. We agree in this moment that by your stripes, Lord Jesus, we were healed. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, by your stripes, we were past tense. We already, it's already been paid for. And so we thank you. We just, we just make a withdrawal on your finished work tonight, Lord Jesus. All over this auditorium, we just pray, Lord God, that your healing stream, your healing force, your healing anointing would flow up and down these aisles and minister to people who need your touch right now. All over this place, we claim, oh God, your victory. We claim your healing presence. We claim the release of your power. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We know that you're willing. We know that you're able. And so we just, we believe. We believe tonight. We believe for that breakthrough that we need. We believe, Lord Jesus. We believe, Lord Jesus. And even as people have reached out to pray for other people, some of them are in need as well. I pray you touch them miraculously even in this moment. Touch them right now. Let your healing stream flow. Let the, po the power of the victory that you purchased through the stripes you bore. Hallelujah. Let, those, let that power be released even now in this moment. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus.